Well, if you've never fallen in love, let me tell you a little bit how it works once you fall in love. Your mind becomes consumed with being with that person or what that person's thinking or how you can be of encouragement to that person. You uh, set aside all other agendas to be able to make things happen for the two of you to get together. You can have all kinds of bad things happen to you. You can wreck your car, right? You can lose your job or something. And, And it's still okay in life because you're in love with someone. There's that initial kind of, yes, there's infatuation aspect, but I don't want to be, you know, frivolous about it. There's, there's a deeper aspect, I know, but it's, it's different as you, as you grow in your love relationship and you get married and you spend years together. That's a whole different kind of deepening way. But remember the first time that you fell in love, maybe with your spouse, maybe it was with someone else and, and your heart was just captured by that person and all that could happen together. Well, the Apostle Paul had that kind of love, a passion. No matter what happened in his life, including being in prison, would not distract him from the joy he had in his relationship with Jesus and all that Jesus was doing in the world. You see, Paul was a religious leader of the Jews who he had gone to all the schools. He had all the degrees He had uh, been the zealot who would even persecute people who wouldn't do the Jewish traditions, including the first Christ followers. He persecuted them. He stood by when Stephen was stoned in Acts 7 because he was a zealot for religion. But then God got a hold of his life and Jesus appeared to him. And he became a zealot not for religion. He became a zealot for the relationship, the love relationship with Jesus. He was passionate. And here's my question to us. Have you ever come to a place in your life where your Christian faith is something other than your religion? But it's a passionate love relationship. If not, I encourage you to step back. And ask God to reveal himself afresh to you through his spirit. To spend time reading through the stories of scripture about Jesus. And how Jesus was passionately in love with the people who would follow him. You see what we have going on here is not a religion. It's not going to church. Even though uh, we had a special today with the bluegrass. I mean that's all nice. It's about that relationship. And the relationship Jesus had with his followers was one of endearment, was one of intensity. It was one of strength. It was one of realness. Now, there's nobody in here, at least that I know of, who has ever had a vision of Jesus in a physical presence appear to them. But he comes to us through his spirit, scripture says. He he told them, Jesus told his disciples when they were freaking out about him leaving and going back into the heavenlies, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will send my spirit. And that's exactly what he did. So though we can't hug a Jesus today because he's not here in physical form, we embrace the spirit because he is. Or we open our hearts and lives up to that spirit. And it's a passionate love relationship. That's why Paul could say what he said last week. When we 
sort of anchored on this verse in Philippians 1.21 where he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is to be able to have Jesus in my life, to be able to serve his purposes, to be helpful, able to help encourage you people there that are in Philippi. For me to live is Christ, but you know what? I want to hug the physical Jesus. I want to embrace him. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Paul, who was Saul when he was that religious zealot, was struck blind on the road to Damascus. And Jesus appeared to him. And he crumbled before Jesus. And he says, who are you? What do you want from me? And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? I do not see anywhere in that passage in Acts where, where Jesus appears to Saul and he's transformed. He becomes Paul. He becomes a believer. He's blinded for a period of time and then the blindness goes away. I do not see anywhere in that context that Paul was able to hug Jesus. Peter did. John did. James did. Even doubting Thomas did. I'm sure. Paul never had that chance to hug Jesus. So he says, for me to live is Christ. I'm willing to stay here, but man, for me to die is gain. Because he had this passionate love relationship with Jesus. And the joy that flooded his soul rose up over everything else in life. No matter how crappy his weeks were. And he'd had a lot of them in a row. In fact, he had a lot of years in a row, possibly in that prison cell. But he writes this, writes this letter of joy. Because he had life and joy in Christ. Do you and I. So he's writing this letter to these Christians in Philippi trying to encourage them. And we step into verse 27 today. And 27 begins to articulate really um, one of the main reasons for the letter. Yes, he wanted to let them know how he had been doing in prison. And he wanted to give them encouragement in their faith. But he had heard some uh, scattering rumors that came actually through Epaphroditus who had brought a message to him, a letter from the Christians in Philippi. Now remember, the, the Christians in Philippi were a thousand miles away from where Paul was most likely in Rome in prison. A thousand miles. But there was something unique about the Christians in Philippi or actually all the people that lived in Philippi. They actually were citizens of Rome. Won't go into the details, but if you lived in Philippi, you would be a citizen of Rome, which was a thousand miles away. Now, Rome was not a state. It wasn't a country. Rome was what? A city. But it was a republic. It was a city into itself. It would be like Los Angeles declaring that it was a state. All right? Rome was big time. Big happenings. Never been to Rome myself. I look forward to going someday. But the movement at that time in the first century... If you were a Roman citizen, you had some special privileges. You were a part of a, a certain right. And, and again, the explanation time doesn't afford to be able to explain it. But all the people that were in Philippi were Roman citizens. And um, Paul was writing to them because he'd heard some challenges happening in the early church of that city. And the early church of that city um, was doing really well. They were thriving in many ways. There wasn't some big time heresy going on, but he had heard through Ephroditus, and you can read it in the latter part of Philippians, um, that there was a schism going on. 
And so he says this to them in Philippians 1.27. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He was saying, heads up, Christians there in Philippi. What's going on? Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, if you were to take some of the Greek language that's here, it's interesting because uh, there's more behind this phrase than what might first appear. In fact, in our life group on Tuesday, um, Sarah led our life group Tuesday. She did a great job. And um, we uh, were looking at the latter part of Philippians 1. And as we were reading the scripture and we came across this particular verse because we sort of moved into the latter part of um, Philippians 1. By the way, that's what you do in life group. You sort of uh, take what we do this morning and unpack it and rethink through things. And even if you don't care for anything I said on a Sunday morning, you study it yourself and you figure out what God's wanting to say to you as a life group. And um, that's one of the things you do as a life group. And um, I was listening to the scripture being read and I realized that my version of the Bible that I happen to have that day, which is this one right here, this is New Living Translation, it didn't say that. And it bothered me because I knew I was speaking on it this Sunday because the verses I'm putting up here out of the NIV. And, and so I looked at my NLT and I'm like, there's, it says something a little bit different in mine. And it like really bothered me. And the reason was, and I looked into it this week is because the word that's behind the conduct yourselves in a manner is a, a Greek word that has more punch and power to it. It's actually a term that meant political or politics. And so in the NLT, it says this, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. So I'm thinking, how did the NLT insert live as citizens of heaven and the NIV left it out? It's because those writers, I mean, those transposers were trying to dig in behind. There was something that the words only used twice. And the other time that it's used by Paul in another epistle, it has more of this political kind of edge to it. And so Paul's saying, whatever um, you do, you need to conduct yourselves as citizens of heaven. You who are citizens of Rome, do you not realize that you are citizens of something higher and greater than Rome? And you are citizens of heaven. You are on God's team. You are a part of his body. And you need to act like you are a part of that country, that citizenship the NLT also adds the word above all, which the NIV misses because it, there's a, a, a word there that says uh, this only, this one thing, above all things. And so Paul's saying, all right, I heard that there's some a schism going on. There was actually two women uh, who were in some type of argument or debate with one another. And it just really wasn't very becoming, not only the women, but of the church itself. And it was sort of causing some other problems, divisions within the church. And he just says, stop it. Do you not realize that you're citizens of heaven? And this one thing you need to be doing if you're a part of this group of people is rise above it and live a life that's worthy, worthy of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You ever been in a church that has schisms? It's not a pretty scene. In fact, I think it's probably one of the ugliest sins you can find on this earth. Really, uglier than all the other sins that the world sometimes, you know, comes up with. 
or maybe you've fallen into in your history. An ugly sin of where you're supposed to be one in passionate love with Jesus. And we are supposed to be the bride of the bridegroom Christ. And we are following him and serving him. And we are, we are privileged to cherish this good news of God's salvation and transformation. We who get to do this are fighting with one another. We're gossiping. We're, we're backstabbing each other. And it just makes you want to, I don't know, get sick. It's an ugly sin. And it's torn down a lot of churches. And it's torn apart denominations. Now, if it has to do something with, you know, uh, uh, the purity of doctrine or some violation of practice, not aligning with Scripture and church, I can understand why there shouldn't be dissension. There should be rebuke, if there will. There should be correction. We're not saying that. But that's not what's going on in this Bosie. It's just, just some schism that's happening and some disagreements and people turning sort of one another. And I'm on this person's side. I'm on that person's side. You see, the unity of the body is so, so critical for being able to show the world the power of a love relationship with Jesus. And so, after all the beginning parts and him sharing a little bit of his joy found in Christ, that for him to live as Christ and to die as gain, he says, all right, now, you Christians in Philippi, in that Roman city, or that city that declares you as Roman citizens, you need to wake up and remember this one thing. You're citizens of heaven. So conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of that. I remember hearing the story, maybe I've shared it here before, of um, Napoleon. And um, he uh, did not like people that were um, on the battlefield that would desert the army. Because he was conquering all the known world that time. And uh, he, he had uh, someone come before him that had been a deserter. And he asked this deserter, he says, what is your name? And I've now just remembered that I got the story wrong. It's an aging thing, isn't it, Diane? It wasn't Napoleon, it was Alexander. We'll delete that from the message tape later. We're all, we're all human. Alexander the Great had confronted this individual. And before he was going to give him sort of his sentence or try to figure out what to do with this deserter, he said, what is your name? And the young boy looked down and he said, Alexander. And he said, what? What is your name? And he said, Alexander. And he raised his voice one more time and says, what is your name? He said, Alexander. And all he said was he looked at him and he just simply said this, son, you change your conduct or you change your name. I hear that a lot in my head. What is your name? Christian. What? Uh, a Christian. A Christ follower. A, a Christian. 
What did you say? Carrie? Is your real name? I'm a Christian. Then change your conduct or change your name. And that's the same kind of passion that Paul had in this moment for the church. He wasn't mad at them. He wasn't beating them up. He was just grieved in his spirit a little bit about all that he knew to be true of Christ and the movement of Christ in that world. And he says, this one thing, above all, if you're a Christian, then change your conduct or change your name. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It goes on and says this in verse 27, then whether I come, and see you or only hear about you in my absence. Why? Because he hoped to come see them, but he didn't know. He may end up there in prison forever. He may not get released. He may end up dying with some sentence from prison. But he, he said either way, he says, I want you to be mindful of this. Whether I come and see you or only hear about you in person, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Now there's two critical things that are mentioned here as he's addressing them. I want to know, Paul says, as it relates to conduct, he says, are you standing firm in the one spirit? All right. Or are you striving together? And we'll touch on that in a second. The stand firm in one spirit, it can be referencing, hey, let's all be one in the Lord, we're one spirit. But more than likely, there's this edge to it that's referencing the Holy Spirit. And he says, conduct yourself in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. In other words, change your conduct or change your name. We need you to stand firm together in one spirit. And what he's saying by this is that we can't stand firm if we don't have a central purpose to stand around. And we stand around the person of Christ, who he is and what he has done and what he's calling us to do. Unity in a body. Because you know what? You take a unity here, right? We're from different ages, different generations even. We are from different backgrounds, different parts of the country, some of us. We are from different ethnic groups, maybe. We have different kinds of careers. There's a lot of beautiful diversity, even in a smaller congregation such as the Awakening. How can we ever be one? Well, the only way that we can be truly one is to come around the spirit of Jesus Christ and allow him and our love relationship to Jesus bring us into unity. And so Paul says, stand firm in the one spirit. Don't try to stand and live according to yourself. Stand and live according to who Jesus is. Now, the stand firm kind of idea had this Roman um, legion kind of feel in it as well. If you can picture Roman soldiers standing shoulder to shoulder, back to back, guarding, protecting, shield, spear. That's the concept that's behind the stand firm. And so instead of the schisms happening in the church, and it may not be a schism that's happening in the church, by the way. Can I just say that it may be that you've got a relationship out there with some other brother or sister in the faith. Maybe they're in some other area of the country or, or the town. Maybe they go to a different church. But things just aren't right. There's still grief in that because it's the body of Jesus at large. And so the Apostle Paul says we need to stand firm. We need to lock arms shoulder to shoulder, united in our one spirit of fighting and serving Jesus Christ. 
And so if there is a schism, if there is a problem, maybe you have a problem with a brother or sister here this morning. Maybe they're in the church. Maybe they're outside this local church. You can get to reconciliation if you remember the one spirit in which you stand united together. So he says, stand firm in the one spirit. And then the second thing he says is striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. This striving together has a, um, an athletic kind of tone to it. So Super Bowl Sunday, right? Chilly in Minnesota. I'm glad I get to watch it on TV. No envy about not being there. But you would predict that in a big game like this, that both the Patriots and the Eagles are going to be striving together as a team to do what? To get that little leather ball across a line (laughs) with all of their effort for three hours on end. They are going to strive together as teams to get the leather ball across the line to score points or to kick it through the uprights so that they can score points, so that they can win, so their name can go down in history, so they can get the big ring, so they can go around and gloat. We won Super Bowl, what is it, 52. All right? Striving together. We love competition in the United States, right? We uh, like to watch our games. We like battles. We even like fights. We, we are passionate about striving together. And if you're from a sports background, you know what that means. Let's lay it on the line, man. Let it all out there. All, all the lines that the coaches give. I'm not a coach. Uh, I am a champion of Christ. But I align with the word. And the word says to you, the spirit says to you through the word, through the apostle Paul, not just to the Christians in Philippi, but to the Christians in the awakening church in Temecula Valley, he says, strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. That's his passion. Are we doing that? I tell you what, if we do that, not only do you stay clear from some of the schisms, so you might have disagreements about strategy and ideas and resources, those kinds of things, but there'll be a camaraderie that comes together. And your love for Jesus will expand. When the 50, 55 students or whatever head to camp this weekend, what do we want them to do? What do I want you to do? What's Joe want you to do? Stand firm in one spirit. Discover Jesus more and more. Follow passionately in love with him. And then strive together how you as a youth group can contend for the faith of the gospel in this world. And that youth group will have unity. If the youth group, if our student ministry does not come together around Jesus Christ in passion for his gospel, you're going to be a bunch of cliques. And you're going to hurt people, offend people. You're going to go off. And, and before you know it, there's a scattering of the people. There's, there's, there's no uh, uh, you know, growing aggregate of students middle school and high school that are coming together. It's Jesus and passion for his kingdom that will continue to see you guys grow and make an impact in all the schools of this valley. So stand firm in one spirit. Strive together as one for the gospel. And then verse 28, he says, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. Oh, well, there are enemies. Yeah, there's enemies sometimes within the church, sadly so. And there's enemies outside the church, and there's people that will mock you. They'll, they'll, they'll scorn you. 
you're going to have enemies. So if you've got into the Christian deal because you thought maybe everybody's going to be nice to you, then you're totally wrong. Look at Paul. He's in prison. You're going to have enemies. But Paul says, don't be intimidated in any way by the enemies who sort of roll their eyes about, oh, really, you went to church. Well, that was really nice. Or I can't believe you just said you were a follower of Christ. Right? You're going to have enemies. Enemies within the church or maybe some people that are like, I, I, can't, I can't put up with the way you're acting. And then the others are like, well, who do you think you are? There's going to be enemies. But Paul says, don't be intimidated. Don't find yourself in fear of your enemies. This will be a sign to them that you are going to be destroyed, that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. Who? What's Paul saying here now? Where are you going, Paul? Well, Paul's saying this. If you stand firm and if you strive together, passionately knowing and making Christ known, you will have such a dynamic to you that it will bring conviction to other people. They may never say that, but they'll say there's something about the way that they're living. It will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed. Now, what's that referencing? Yes, it's to some degree it's referencing that there's an eternal lostness. All right, hell is not, you know, hellfire and brimstone. It's outer darkness. It's being away from God. And so there'll be a conviction that you are one who is with God, but where they're at in their soul and what their destiny may be is that it's, or their destiny will be if they're outside of Christ, is that they will be apart from God eternally. All right? So, I mean, Paul doesn't mince words. He's not, you know, going to, you know, sidestep the whole subject of eternal damnation or something like that. It's sort of embedded in here at some level. But more important than the whole destruction of eternal uh, life, it's the destruction of what's happening in their everyday life. He says it will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed. They continue down this path in their um, schism and their skirmishing one with another. Yeah. It'll speak to them, even though they may not say anything. Your ability to be united in Christ and have joy in him, to stand firm, to be able to contend and strive for the gospel has a powerful voice and witness into other people's lives. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. So Paul lays it out. Paul speaks to them clearly about what they should and should not be doing in the local body, but it goes broader than just the local body. Let me pause here and sort of unpack this just a little bit, some passion and heart on it. Um, I um, heard somebody speaking this week about our low expectations some ways times we have in our culture. And uh, one of the references was being given, if you don't mind me, students, sort of, I guess you might think I'm picking on you right now, but I'm really not trying to encourage you, is that we have low expectations of our teenagers today. Take you that 15 to 18 years old. And um, should we not expect a 15-year-old to be able to clean their room without their mom's oversight? And maybe also do one other chore and uh, at least um, leave the car with a quarter of a tank of gas in it when you're done. 
Should we not be able to expect teens to do that? And the answer is, yes, we should, but do not expect all three. (laughs) Seventy years ago, there was no such thing as a teenager. They were adults. And they had responsibilities. They worked and they labored and they made men's from the self. And I'm not saying that our students don't or that teenagers don't today. But we step back and we go, yeah, why is there such a low expectation for teenagers today? I remember when I was trying to head up a college, I mean, I was trying to head up a youth group after we'd had two youth pastors fall morally. I was in college and I took it over for the summer to try to make amends and try to get this broken group of students moving forward. And the new youth pastor came, who I had heard very good things about, and he was a very good youth pastor. I remember sitting with him, and I knew what God had sort of started to do in my life when I was that age, when I was actually 15. And I looked at him across the table, and I said, Dwight, is it is impossible for me to think that a 15-year-old can grab a hold of the things of the Lord and take off and be a, a vibrant follower of Jesus. And he looked at me, and he said, Carrie, if that's not possible, then I have no reason for being here, and neither do you. And we saw God grab a hold of that youth ministry that went from 30 to about 130 within a year. We had some powerful times at what we called Miracle Camp. And today, many of those students are vibrantly serving Christ, some of them in overseas missions role and some in pastorate roles and some in business and marketing that that are just knocking it down for Jesus. And so don't tell me that a 15-year-old can't grab a hold of the things of the Lord at a Star Wars camp on a weekend like this. Or that it's not worth it, worth your investment or your investment financially, your investment through prayer, because they can. It changes people's lives when they really get touched by the Lord and they have a team around them to strive for the gospel. Changes their whole, and I'm not going to use the word trajectory because I was told this last week, I use that word a lot. So <laughs> it's going to change their whole direction in life. Somebody told me that. Says, you have a favorite word you use. It's called trajectory. I said, I do like that word. Low expectations. Let's not have low expectations of our young adult teens. But what about the church? What about the American church? The expectations of the American church are pathetically low. Well, I'll, I'll give you one example. What, what if I changed, um, or this reference given, what if I changed service time for next week and moved it to the afternoon? How many would say, I'm out, right? Well, you know, what if I changed some, you know, instead of bluegrass once every now and then, we did bluegrass every week. Some of you say, I'm here, man. I'm bringing my friends. (laughs) Um, But what if we did away with the band next week? Would you be here? Just I'm out. And, um, what if we didn't have somebody speaking? What if we just said we're going to stay the whole time circled up and just read the scriptures and pray? In or out? You see, it's sort of like 
low expectations of teenagers. We've just sort of come to have low expectations of the church. But Paul didn't have those. Paul, you see, he was caught up still in the first century of which he was a part of the book of Acts, right? And the Holy Spirit came upon them as they gathered and, and he lit them up. And man, they, they began to speak in other languages and thousands were saved. And, and then they moved together in these house movements and they gathered at the temple, right? And, and there was passion. They were excited. They were moving forward. They were not the ones who were fearful of the people of the world. The world was sort of fearful of them. Oh my goodness. What do these people have? And there were healings. There were signs of miracles. There were wonders. But there was the love and the compassion. The caring for people. And, and, and they were all together. Standing firm. Striving for the faith. And this incubator, if you will, of the early church was powerful. It had a dynamic. Does that matter to you? I mean, and, and, and there was such, which was such holiness to it that you get to Acts 5 and Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, they lied to the Holy Spirit and boom, they were dead because they were lied and tried to hold some things back. And then you had people like Stephen who was being stoned for his faith, but it didn't matter because the truth was going out and the church scattered from there and, and it went over to the known parts of the world. There was this dynamism that was happening in the New Testament and we sit back in an American church and go, well, that was a different time and a different place, a different age. But does it ever bother you when you look through the scriptures and you read about that? The difference, the low expectation we have for the American church today compared to what happened and should be happening from the first century. We just sort of accommodate. I am not in ministry, and you've heard me say this before, to play church. There's many other great things I could have done in my life. But I'm in the ministry because I passionately love Jesus I want to know him and I want to make him known. And every day, every week, week in and week out, no matter what any of us are doing, whether we're in some type of vocational ministry or we do ministry in our workplace and we love on people, care for people, run a business, serve people at a restaurant, it doesn't matter what you're doing during the week. But your primary calling is that you're a disciple of Jesus, passionately in love with him, standing firm together in the one spirit, striving together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God wants those kinds of local churches so that his church in America can be powerful. China, under communist rule, there was fear of what would happen in China, but the church went underground and they would meet together. And when the, iron, the bamboo curtain came down, it's like the church is bigger than it ever was. Because it had that dynamism. And other places around the world, even where there's persecution today, there's a vibrancy of faith. And so Paul, he doesn't speak to these people as wimpy Christians. He says, own up, live as citizens of heaven, realize who you are, one in the spirit. And you need to come together. You need to come together around this reality that you're one in the spirit and you're one in the cause and the purposes of Jesus Christ. And as we are in that mold and that paradigm, in that movement, we should not fear our enemies, but our enemies should fear us. Amen, you're right. So be it. So then it comes down to each of us doing our own heart check. How about us? How about where we're at and what God's doing in our own life? Do we want to have that fervency? Verse 29, he says, For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. Those are 
strange things to put together, aren't they? I'm going to trust Jesus and he's going to make my life right. <laughs> he's going to give me what I need. He's going to bring me all the peace and he's going to bring me all the hope. He's going to bring me all the things I don't have. Well, he'll bring you peace and hope because he's the prince of peace and he brings ultimate hope. He brings hope to everyday life. But Jesus is not a vending machine. God is not a celestial Santa Claus. And sometimes in the American church, we fall into the consumer mindset rather than have the conviction of one who is centered around his covenant. A covenant bow for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. We will follow you, Jesus, and your purposes. For you and I, Paul says, have been given this privilege of trusting in Jesus Christ. But also, it's a privilege to suffer for him. You will suffer. You will suffer and you will find yourself opposed. I don't know where you're at in your faith today. Don't hold back. Some of you are worried that you might look like a religious nut if you got a little bit bolder. That's not your issue to worry about. You need to stand firm. And strive together. The Lord will take care of other things. And even if you do suffer. What does Paul say? For me to live is Christ. But to die is gain. That's the mindset he had when he wrote this letter. He is laying it out. Because he had that passion in his heart. We are in this struggle together friends. Whether in the faith between Rome and Philippi, a thousand miles apart, or here at the Awakening Church. We're in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past. He calls them to identify with it because he knows they're going to have opposition as well, even beyond the schism that's in their local church. And you know that I am still in the midst of it. Suffering will be a part of you stepping out. So maybe somebody's done you wrong recently. Maybe a Christian even. Don't be discouraged. Commonplace into stepping out. I list this. The presence of fear removes us from trust in Christ and unity with one another. If you fear being bold, you'll be moving backwards. You won't be moving forwards. The presence of fear removes us from trust in Christ and unity with one another. The absence of fear removes opposition from others and unites us in Christ even if suffering continues. It's a word for us today. I close with this. Band can come. The exhortation is to stand firm in one spirit, strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. We do that, then fear ends up being removed it's why it's important for you to be together in christ striving centered around not only um, the things of responsibility you have during the week but centered around knowing christ but i close with this i came across it from oswald chambers great man of the word faith maybe this is for someone this morning because he was talking about suffering and what happens when you go this path 
and it struck me really hard. God can never make us whine if we object to the fingers he uses to crush us with. If God would only use his own fingers, we think, and make us broken bread and poured out wine in a special way, then we'd think that's probably pretty cool. That's all right, it's God. But when he uses someone whom we dislike or some set of circumstances to which we have said we would never submit, we object. And this is the phrase that caught me. We must never challenge the scene of our own martyrdom. If ever we are going to be made wine to drink, we will have to be crushed. You cannot drink grapes. Grapes become wine only when they have been squeezed. Paul was being squeezed, but he was being made into wine. He was telling the Christians in Philippi, there's some opposition. You have enemies. You live. You stand firm. You strive together. Let that beauty emerge as a conviction to other people. And even if that dissension, that enemy doesn't go away and you endure suffering, know this, (laughs) that we can never challenge the scene of our own martyrdom. God, through others at every turn, is pressing us into being more like him. And even in persecution, his gospel has gone forward in some ways as never before. So be blessed this day knowing that the God Almighty of the universe is actively working through your life to bring him glory, even in your suffering. And he wants to change and transform you. We need to stay united as a church, but we need to stay united in Christ and for his purposes. We need the God who is the God of the universe bringing about his kingdom to be our vision. And we need to stay the course no matter how ill your week has become. The Lord Jesus loves you. Be passionate. Serve him in all ways. The ushers are going to come and receive the Lord's tithes and offerings as well as your connection cards. If you have prayer concerns, please list those. But the band, our special band this morning, is going to close with a great hymn of the faith. Be thou our vision.